Well, some of you know that we've had this uh, human trafficking conference this past week, and then it's the first time our church has, has done something in this area, and for some people it may be the first time they heard anything about it, and, and we're blessed this morning to have the keynote speaker from, from that conference here, and I'm going to ask Becky McDonald to come up here, and I'm going to ask her a few questions and give you a little taste of what, of what you might have missed, um, but also to help encourage you and teach, uh, teach us more about this, this very, very important um, problem that's confronting our, our world today. And so, uh, first of all, I know we don't have a lot of time, and, and I know you probably have a million and one stories, but could you give us one story that really captures, um, you know, the problem and then what you guys do to help? I could tell you thousands of stories. I could tell you stories of uh, Muslims that we've rescued, even in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that we've led to Christ. One of them was baptized last year. I could tell you stories of women we've rescued from the red light districts of the United States of America and seen them come to know the true and living God and go on to have the job of their dreams and wipe out their past. But I, I want to tell you a story about a child from India because she represents something. We have um, a partner, we, uh, Women at Risk International, that rents two rooms in a red light district that are meant for prostitution, but they're all women who are trafficked there. They're mostly minors. And one of those rooms is like a free clinic where we give these women medical care. And the other room is like a prayer room or a counseling room. It's our room, and if the women have a customer they're afraid of, they can run in there and come to us and sit with us and talk. And there we met Sweetie's mom. She was 16 when she had Sweetie, who is, that's the real name of the child. And children in the red light districts of the world are all at risk. They're terribly at risk, and that's another whole story in and of itself. But for some reason, this child took the ire of the madam. And so the madam, the woman who owned this minor who was being sold daily, took the child away from the mother when she was born, put her in a cardboard box, and would not let the mother hold her, touch her, hug her, do anything, because she said she has to grow up to no violence because of what she's going to be sold for. Every time that child cried, she was beaten black and blue. She learned not to cry. Babies have a way of crawling out of boxes, you know, at 10 months old. So Sweetie crawled out of the box, and so they tied her to a pole. And they sent me a picture, and they said, Becky, please send this out and get the war world to pray. We can't buy her. That makes us a trafficker. We can't kidnap her. That makes us a kidnapper. What do we do? We have tried everything, and this woman will not quit beating on this child. Send the picture out. And I said, no, it's too inflammatory. There's no reason to do that. It's just a hard enough subject with what we deal with. But our partners on the ground are the boss. Every culture of the world, we are culturally sensitive. They are the ones on the ground. They know their culture the best. So I told them, let's pray about it for a week. And you pray about it as a team, and then we'll talk. That week, I got pictures of my seven grandchildren. And those little monsters change every time I get a picture of them, don't they? 
And I thought, there's no way you would know Sweetie today, who's seven, from her picture at 10 months old. So they, we agreed, and we sent that email out, and it lit a fire in the war world. This child chained to a pole, tied to a pole with a red cord, with gutters behind her, which we whited out so that you didn't see what was in them. And so many people asked for that card that we, or that email, that we made a card, a prayer card. And I asked my partners to trade that red cord for American Pack and Play. And that red cord sits in the offices of Women at Risk International in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I pray over that. And you know there's another red cord in scripture that tied a harlot to the family of God and set her free, Rahab. And my prayer was that Sweetie would be tied to the family of God someday. So I began traveling there every year. I know that culture. I grew up as an American in, on the Indian subcontinent in Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. I went to boarding school in West Pak, went through two wars, grew up in a war zone. And so I used that cultural knowledge to obligate this madam to me. And finally she told me, Becky, the real owner is a corrupt government official. Oh, we knew him. We thought he was just a customer. So I asked to speak to uncle. And I met with uncle. And he stared at me. And I begged him for the life of this child. And Potiphar was not letting his slave go. But then the madam got so good at her job and was making so much money that she moved out of the red light district, which she still runs, and built herself a home. And she wants to be a landlord and not let, have people know what she does so that she has, you know, uh, status and no loss of face. And so she moved Sweetie there to be the babysitter to her two-year-old granddaughter. So we were able to do a raid. And then she ended up in a government orphanage. <laughs> That's like going from the frying pan into the fire. So long story short, our partners took their life savings, a man and a woman, ministry couple, of $2,000, which was like 200000 to them, found the mother, who was almost dead, patched her up, marched her into that orphanage, and marched Sweetie out of it, because she's the only one that could do that. And we, today, Sweetie is in a home, American woman married to an Indian pastor, who is raising 10 little kids. They all have terrible stories. I took a child psychologist with me last year, who evaluated the kids and she said, Becky, it makes no sense, but this little girl is normal for now. And you know what that is? That's the prayers of God's people. A million dollars can build a safe house, but it will not put a child in a safe place. It will not rescue a child and it will not give them a buffer against the horror of what they're going through. I just got back from India and we had an ice cream party and I ordered ice cream sundaes for all ten, nine kids. And the waiter came up to me in this nice hotel and said, these kids can share. They don't need their own ice cream sundae. And I said, why would you say that? He said, they just don't need their own. I said, you go get me 15 ice cream sundaes right now. <laughs> and they had ice cream sundaes. And then when we left, they sat there for three hours and ate sugar. And they speak English and read and write English fluently. And they were well behaved and that that same waiter came up to me and said, ma'am, who are these children? They're so well behaved. And I said, they're being raised 
in a Christian home and learning the love of Jesus Christ. And that's why they're precious. And I walked away and thought, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> but I share that story with you because today, sweetie, for the moment, is in a safe place. And I have her mother in a micro-enterprise training. But sweetie represents every man, woman, and child who stands on a street corner and is beaten down to the point that they give up hope. And they were once a child who nobody heard their cry. So I beg you, when you see people in your city who you think are standing there voluntarily, I know from 30 years of doing what I do that there's the little child in every one of them who nobody heard their cry. We failed them. Those are all sweeties. Those are all little boys and little girls once upon a time who something terrible happened to them and it spiraled south and they feel that's all they're good for. And God cares about every one of them. And so no matter what sweetie's story ends up, and today they sent me a video of her doing worship music and singing you know, Christian songs and she's going to a Christian school. No matter how her story ends, Every one of those people out there, I don't care if they're 22, 11, 52, they were all children once, and nobody heard their cry. And the God, the Abba Father, hears the cry of the fatherless, and that is my prayer, that you will look at them with the eyes of a mother and a father, and there will be no anger left in you. You will see the sweetie, you will see the child that's crying for intimacy and your heart will be broken for them like God's heart is broken. You know, we hear stories like that and we know that this isn't just one thing. This is happening again and again and again and again. And sometimes we have the opposite thing. We just think it's overwhelming. There's, you know, what can we do? There's nothing we can do. You know, who are we to, you know, a small church or just one person against something like this? So can you give us just two, three things that everybody in this room can do right now to help? When I founded Women at Risk International, I spent two years fasting and praying about ways to have people do non-traditional things, not just pray and give money. Those are terribly important. Prayer, it's the prayers of God's people that protected Sweetie. Money would have made no difference, but the prayers are where two or three are gathered can move the hand of God and set the captive free. So I don't mean to downplay prayer, and obviously it takes money to build safe houses, and those are important things. But my passion is to give you significant ongoing ways to be involved. And so maybe it's signing up for our confidential prayer briefing, which you have to ask for. We have monthly that comes out and it talks. We don't put it on our website. We don't put our newsletters on our website because we know we're monitored by ISIS and traffickers and Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda and all of that because we're, we're in 55 countries. But um, so you, if you would be willing to be a prayer circle, we have prayer circles around the United States. We even have men's prayer groups that pray for our men, women, and children. So those are vital. But I also want to give you ways from the sanctity of your own home. If you like to hold a party, we'll mail you product. That product out there is all made by rescued at and at-risk men and women. I didn't even wear jewelry before. I fought God on the product. I kept telling them, I don't do jewelry. I don't sell. I do women's ministry. 
But honestly, every $300 of sales of the jewelry that they make supports them for a month in a safe house overseas with wraparound services and the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God whispered into their life. We take anybody. We are non-sectarian in who we take, but with the simple message day in, day out, every day in worship service in the morning of who their true worth comes from. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's going on circle tour. Every other year, look on our website, and I've been telling Nolan Namba all weekend that we need to have some Hawaiian worship on Circle Tour and introduce the Thais and the Indians and all of our partners that come to that to this precious, unique uh, form of worship. I just got back from Africa, and we had African worship. So there's just, you know, I want to give you a banquet of ways. I want you to be able, from the sanctity of your own home, to rise up and be that circle of protection to those you love. You are a temple of the living God. It doesn't really matter that no prostituted child would run into the sanctuary for help probably, right? They'd feel judged. But if you leave here committed to be a safe place to those you love, you are a sanctuary. You can be a safe place to those you love. And just this weekend we spent some time, very practical ways that we can do that and so I, you can go on our website, I think there are like 39 or 102, I don't even know anymore, ways that you can get involved, and even right here in Hawaii or around the world, and make a difference and set the captive free. And I would love to talk with you and give you some local nonprofits, or you can be involved with women at risk, but just that you would step into this and ask God what he wants you to do. And the answer will be different for each of us. All right, so the last thing here, um, and I know you probably could spend the next three days telling us this, but I'm just gonna ask you in a nutshell, can you tell us why do you do this? Why do you keep doing this? Well, I had the greatest privilege in the world of growing up as the child, a missionary kid of Baptist medical missionaries in East Pakistan, went to boarding school in West Pakistan, and by the time I was 14, I'd already been through two wars. And my 14-year-old girlfriend was raped and fought back. And to teach her, you have no voice. You are a woman. You have no right to fight back. You're property. We can do anything we want to you. They poured acid, not in her face, as is usual, but down her throat to take away her vocal cords. And God used that in my life to burn a hole in my heart, to be the voice of the silenced, and to lift the least of these, and to give them safe places and wrap arms of love around them. And I'm compelled. He did this for me. He came to this earth. We were all trafficked in Genesis 3.16. We were sold out to the prince of the power of the air. And he didn't abandon us and say, nasty little life you have there. Look what you did. You messed it up. I gave you a garden. He sent a rescue on Christmas Day. And he paid the price on Easter with his own blood. And there is no greater joy. It is hard work to deal with wounded people. But there's no greater joy than seeing a man, woman, or child rise up and find their true worth, put their life back together. And that's what keeps me going. Every one of those happy ending stories. 
And if I was just Chicken Little here saying the sky's falling in, we have 300,000 miners in America alone that are at risk, our own American citizens, I'd just stay home, play with my grandbabies. But I have decades of doing this in the luxury of hindsight, and I can tell you that it works, and it's worth it. And we are called in Micah 6.8, we are required, the Bible says, the Lord requires this of us, to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And how you answer that question will be different for each one of you, but that's the beauty of the body. When I speak to a thousand military or lawyers or doctors, that's all I get. But when I speak to the body of Christ, I get one of everybody here. And the body is uniquely created to be the family of God. And there's no greater joy. To me, I'm just a mommy of the mommy list. I'm, I'm still just a mommy. That's all I do. <laughs> I'm just loving on children and giving grown children who have that child inside that's wounded and giving them a safe place in the name above all names and introducing them to the Abba Father. And my commitment to you is if your baby falls in my pathway, I will do for her what I would do for my own in the hopes that if my baby falls in your pathway and I'm hit by the garbage truck, that you will do for her what you would do for your own. Because until we take this personally and until we all come around this and own this problem, nothing will change and helping them dream again. So seeing them, we've graduated doctors and lawyers and school teachers and goat herders and cosmetologists and now we've got a, a, a boy that we rescued at four who's starting electrical engineering college straight A student. And so just seeing men, women and children rise up and put their lives back together and find true worth, they are what pours steel in my backbone. And when I need to be encouraged, and when I'm discouraged, and when I'm tired, I just go sit in their presence and speak to them and listen to them, and they are what keep me going. And that's the Father would have come for one. He would have come for one. And it's discouraging when I fly into cities at night and I look at the lights twinkling out of the airplane, I'm like, who am I fooling? I'm a nobody. How on earth am I supposed to deal with this? And then I remind myself that God himself did not zap the 5,000 or make all the disciples obedient or make all the lepers thankful. He took the one that was dropped through the ceiling, the woman that tugged on his robe, the child with the fish and the loaves, and Jesus himself dealt with whatever was thrown in his pathway. And so that's our call, to be responsible for the one that he places in our pathway and to not look the other way and not be, you know, walk by the Samaritan, but to step into their life and be Christ with skin on. And we have one life to live. You know that little saying, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that might be because you're a waitress. It might be because you're a realtor. I'm not saying you have to be in ministry. You are in ministry. Every day is ministry. The checkout clerk at the Walmart, that's ministry. And so just living intentionally day in, day out to be Christ with skin on to those around us and love them in the name above all names. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to ask, we're going to pray for Becky and her ministry. And um, if you uh, would take time to come down and just lay hands on her, but if instead of doing that, if you would just rather 
just where you are. If you would like to stand in affirmation, just stand. Um, if you symbolically want to put your hand out, you can put your hand out. And, and let's pray for Becky and let's pray for her ministry right now. So any of you right now that want to do that, Let me, let me pray. You can just reach her, just put your hand out and, as though you're placing it upon her. God, we don't like to look at ugly things and hurtful things and things that are shameful and make us cringe and we just want to see pretty things so much in our lives. God, we, we just are so thankful that you have raised up this, this group and you've called Becky to, to not look at ugly things, but to find your beauty in things that the rest of the world sees as ugly. And that you have called them to reach into these situations and, and bring grace and mercy and love and redeem that which was created in your image. And God, we just pray right now for them. We pray that you continue to give them the power and the strength to do this work and to do it, to do it well and to do it boldly, God. That they would do all things in your spirit and your love. And God, we pray that you would help them to know that they do not walk alone. And God, that even here at Wailai Baptist Church, there are people that, that will continue to pray and continue to give and continue to participate. God, we just, we pray that you bring continued blessing upon this group war and that that blessing would be poured out into this world that so much, so much needs it. God, that you keep them strong, keep them in your word, keep them walking in your spirit. Protect them simply so that they might do even greater things for you. And we thank you. It's in your name I pray, amen. Thank you all. Please be seated. Thank you, Becky. So today we have the second part of this series that we started with of why disciples do what is right. And last week, if you remember, we talked about it. And one of the reasons disciples do what is right is simply because it makes the Father smile. It pleases the Father. And that should be enough. We shouldn't need any other reason than that it pleases the Father. 
It has nothing to do with whether it pleases us or whether it pleases us to please the Father. That doesn't matter. What should matter is God who loves us, God who creates us, God who provides for us, God who has done so much for us that if we can do anything that pleases him, regardless of how it makes us feel, that should be enough. But for that to happen, things have to be done from a pure heart. And we defined what a pure heart was last week. We said a pure heart is, is, is a heart that has no trace of selfishness. That what we do, there's, there's nothing in it. There's nothing in it that's for us. There's nothing in it that's for our attention, for our legacy, anything. It's, it's almost as though we could do things if it wasn't for the need to, for people to, to see Christ in us, but that we could do things almost like ghosts. You know, my, my wife says one of her career goals when she was younger was to be a spy. Um, I'm not sure she would have made a great spy, um, but that's what she wanted to be. And it's almost like that's how it should be, that we're, we're not getting any credit. We're not going to get medals. No one's going to know what we do. We just do it. It's a pure heart. It's not even just for a sense of personal satisfaction because you might not ever get to see that you had any effect on anyone. I always wonder what would have happened if William Carey, the first of the modern missionaries who went to India, if William Carey, if, if his ministry had stopped three or four years in, because if you know anything about his ministry, what happens is he spends seven years in India before he sees one convert. Most of us would have given up after seven months, seven years. And it's coming at great personal sacrifice to him. His wife is so upset that she's been taken to India. She has a mental breakdown. Eventually she has to be institutionalized. What would have happened? What would William Carey have thought if three or four years in, God took him home and he never saw a convert? Well, I hope I know enough about William Carey, the man who said, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, that it wouldn't have mattered. That, that if he had been pulled out three years in, seeing no converts, seeing what it's doing to his family, what personal hardship it caused, that if he was pulled out and he was given a chance to make that decision all over again, that he would have made the same decision. Because it wasn't about how it was going to end up. It was about doing what he believed God was calling him to do right then, at that moment, regardless of what tomorrow brought. You see, most of us want some kind of success. I mean, some kind of promise of success. We want to know, like, if I were to tell you, like, okay, I got this great plan for the church. I got this great plan. The next five years I have this plan. What all of you would want to know is, what are the chances it's going to succeed? Because if I could promise you in five years exactly what we'll be in five years, a lot of people go like, let's do it. 
But if I told you what I told the last church that I was with, if I told you I have a plan, and I have no idea how it's going to turn out, I only know that it's what God wants us to do. That we could fail miserably. That what God might need to do is he, need, he may need to have people like us attempt something and fail, and someone else come along and attempt something similar, and they fail. And maybe there needs to be 37 failures that they all build off of our failure, and finally they get it right. Are you willing to be that failure? Are you willing to trust God, do what he says, even if there's no promise of success? It's the pure heart does. The pure heart does. You see, if, if we were given Jesus' abilities and we were given Jesus' ministry and we were told that, you know, at the end of your ministry, first of all, it's only going to last about three years. Not much of a career. And, yeah, you're going to have moments when you're wildly popular when it's like, you know, we talk about Jesus mania, like Beatle mania, but that at the end, only one of your disciples is going to be there. And your mom, and a few of the women, that's it. We would be like, wait a minute. You're giving me all these powers? You're giving me the ability to heal people and bring them back to life? You're giving me the ability to, 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 to look into God's word and to know it and to preach it in such a powerful way that it draws tens of thousands and at the end I'm gonna end up with my mom who kinda has to be there so she doesn't really count. And then one follower? Really? The pure heart. We do it for the Father's smile, regardless of how it makes us feel. What I hope you heard from what Becky was sharing is what we know is true, but sometimes we just know it in kind of theory because we don't really see it. That we live in a world full of hurting people. And these hurting people, they need help that can only come from God. I wish you could hear more of the stories. I wish you could hear that, that some of them, they don't, they don't get to leave the situation completely. I wish you could hear the stories about some of the victims who have more grace for the ones who were prostituting them and beating them than we would have. Because you would know that they were helped in a way that only God could help. You see, we have enough money to do things for, you know, to, to help you know, give people more food or give them a nicer place to live. But we cannot change their hearts. This world is hurting. And the help 
that they really need can only come from God. I'm only going to read to you just one verse. And this verse, it, it comes out of the book of Micah. And, and I talked on this yesterday at the conference, and you, know, you can listen to, the, to it. And I, I really don't like doing the same message twice, and so it's difficult because I always forget what I said in one, and and then, uh, you know, I don't know. But I'll just tell you a little bit about the background of this passage. It's in the book of Micah. Some of you probably should start now because you've never seen the book of Micah, um, and that part of your Bible, may, the pages still may be stuck together. So I'm giving you a warning. But it's Micah chapter 6. And Micah the prophet is, is writing in the 8th century. And in the 8th century, Israel is, is, is going through this, 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 this development. As in, at this point, it's already devolving. But just prior to, the, to this time, Israel was at the height of its power. God had done something miraculous in Israel. Where Israel was this this group that was kind of ethnically connected, but not as much as we think. I mean, their, their ancestry goes back over 400 years, and in, in that time, there had been a lot of intermarrying. So they're not as, as, as ethnically homogenous as we think. And yet God had brought them out of slavery, and they had become this, this powerful nation. Some people even say for a brief time they were an empire. But that, that success that they had, that worldly success that they had came at a price. And they became a lot like the rest of the world around them. In fact, in Micah's time, you know, in the, in, in, in the northern kingdom, what happens is as soon as Solomon dies, at the height of, of Israel's power, he dies and, and people start fighting for control. And the kingdom divides into two. And in the north, it's just one bad king after another. Very few kings even die of natural causes. They're, they're assassinated. This doesn't sound like the people that had said there at the base of Mount Sinai that we make this covenant with you, God. That we agree to what you say is how we should live. No. In the highest places, they're, they're, they're breaking all of the commandments. They're embracing this sin, this lack of gratitude to God for his, what he's provided. They, they've become idolaters and, and um, engaging in you know, the ritual prostitution that was, that was, that was very common in the, in the religions around them. They were even participating in, in a form of, of infanticide, of killing babies. Killing babies in the name of of worshiping one of the gods. And while all this is happening, while they're living in their success, there's a growing threat. The Assyrian, the Assyrian Empire is 
is quickly ascending to power. And the prophet Micah is called. And God is going to speak. And as I told the group yesterday, you know, the, the, the Disney version of this, or the version that a lot of American Christians want to hear, is God's going to raise up Micah, and Micah's going to go, you guys have been naughty. Stop being naughty, and God will save you. That's what they want to hear. That's what we think. And then Israel's going to stop being naughty, and God's going to protect them from their enemies. Instead, God says this. He says, your wounds are incurable. Your wounds are incurable. It's like if the doctor says, you have cancer and there's nothing we can do about it. Your wounds are incurable. You are going to die. Why are their wounds incurable? Their wounds are incurable because they're not simply actions, they're not simply sins. Their wounds are incurable is because the disease is in their very culture. It's in their DNA. And it's being expressed not just in their idolatry, it's also being ex expressed in, in their, their lack of compassion for their, for their fellow Israelites. They, the rich are getting richer and the poor are being more and more oppressed. And it's not like the picture we sometimes get of, of rich people sitting up there, you know, saying, you know, how can we hurt the poor people? It's not, that's not what's happening. It's as though the rich people don't know the poor people exist. They don't even think about them. It's like they don't exist. That's how bad it is. Israel had been intended to be this great nation, this model for the other nations to follow. Other nations were supposed to see what Israel was doing in following God and God's ways and establishing what a good nation, a good society is. And other nations were supposed to say, you know what, we should do that too. But no. That's not what's happening. Their wounds are incurable. But in the midst of this, Micah says, there is a remnant. There is a remnant of faithful people. And that's who this verse is directed to. So in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is a summary of the Old Testament. It's a quote that's been quoted by presidents of the United States. A lot of us can look at this and if long as nobody pays attention to the details, we can all agree with this. Like, this is good. Do justice love kindness, walk humbly, that sounds like good advice. 
But we need to understand this in context. And I don't have time to unpack all of it as much as I'd like, but let me just give you a few quick points. First of all, as we learned last week, righteousness means that we, in, in the expression of righteousness, one of the main ways we express righteousness is that we help those in need. What does this tell us? It tells us that doing what is right Doing what is right is the mark of the true disciple. Doing what is right is the mark of the true disciple. Helping people in need is the mark of a true disciple. You don't have to wonder what righteousness is. You may not fully understand what righteousness is, but Jesus has told us back in Matthew what righteousness looks like. Righteousness looks like you see people in need, you help them. That's what it looks like. James, the brother of Jesus, says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why widows and orphans? Why did he specify that? Because they were the most needy. If we're not meeting the needs of the most needy, then what are we doing? Are we just picking people that we think we can help? You see, when we pick the most needy, we're saying a couple things. First of all, we're saying the most needy are unlikely to be able to help us back. So we're really helping the way God helps. We're loving the way God loves. He doesn't help those who can pay him back. He doesn't give for what he can receive. But the other point of meeting the needs of the most needy means that most of us will admit we can't meet the needs of the most needy. It's easy if, if you go up to somebody and you say, what do you need? And they say, oh, I need five bucks. And so you go, oh, here's five dollars. It's quite a different situation if you say, oh, what do you need? Uh, I need a ride to the hospital twice a week for the rest of my life. Oh, ooh, here's five bucks. I need a place to live. I need a job. I need somebody who will sit with me and counsel me, and it's going to take years before I ever sort this stuff out. Oh, here's five bucks. No, James and Jesus agrees, go to the most needy. Jesus says it this way when he tells the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, he, he talks about how, how, you know, how when he was hungry, his disciples fed him, and how when he was naked, they clothed him, and when he was in prison, they came to visit him. And the disciples are confused and are saying, when did we do this? When did we do this? And it says, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You didn't just help the people you felt you could help without it inconveniencing you too much. 
You found the most needy person and you help the most needy person. Even though you knew you couldn't. That's the witness. The second point, to do what is right, we need to do justice. It doesn't say no justice. It doesn't say understand justice. It says you need to do justice. But of course, to do it, we need to know what is God's justice? What does God consider right and wrong? And this is the big problem that the world is having today, even among Christian, especially Christian young people. They all want to talk about God's love. I love God's love. We need to show God's love more to the world. But nobody wants to talk about God's justice. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that God has said there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And we need to know them. We need to know his justice. Yes, we need to know his love. That's the next point. That disciples do God's justice. They do this justice, but they do it with great kindness. Maybe a better word than kindness there is with great mercy. What the prophet says, that what is good is that we love mercy. In other words, we don't know what we don't want to know what God considers right and wrong so we can sit there and judge, so we can sit there and condemn. I've told you this before, but I would love to see this place full of people, not like us, who have become really good at hiding our sin. I want people who walk in here and their sin is so apparent when they walk in this room doesn't mean we're better than them. It's just that we're better, than, we're better at hiding it. Why doesn't the prostitute feel welcome in this church? Would you welcome them? Would you welcome the homosexual? Would you welcome the lesbian? Would you? We need to. We need to. And we need to welcome them in such a way that they know without a doubt they are loved. But they also need to know that the God who loves them also is a God of justice. We are not doing the world any favors by just saying God loves and therefore he accepts everything that anybody wants to do or wants to be. We need both. And I'm not telling you it's easy. It's hard. It's hard to love in such a way that we do not compromise the holiness of God. And it is difficult to be holy in such a way that we do not compromise his love. If you don't find it difficult, then you're not doing it. you don't find it difficult to know what do I say? How do I help? How do I love somebody that's doing something that's clearly against God's word? We need that. Disciples understand God's justice. They do God's justice, but they do so with great kindness. 
And then the last bit says they live, they walk humbly before God. A better word than humbly might be carefully. But maybe you could just leave that out altogether and just say, disciples, walk with God. God is always present. And I'm telling you, if I'm walking with God, I'm pretty much going to follow him. I'm not going to walk with God and and say, hey, God, let's go over here. I want to know where he's going. I want to know what he's doing. I want to see what he's looking at. And if if I feel constantly that I'm in the presence of God because I actually am, I'm always going to think about doing things that don't offend him, that honor him, that even make him smile. But this is a reminder to us that even though disciples, disciples do right because they're the disciple, it is the mark of the disciple to do what is right, that it is impossible to do what is right without God. It is impossible to do what is right with a pure heart without being changed by the Holy Spirit. This is the point we need to understand. As disciples, we do right because we have been made right. We don't do right to get right. We don't do right so that we have a list. When we became Christians, we were given the Holy Spirit and we were made right. And here's the other side. If you have the Holy Spirit and you are a disciple, you cannot help but do what is right because it is who you are. You cannot hear stories like Becky told us today and not want to respond in a right way to meet needs. And it's gonna be different for everyone But what should be the same for every believer in this room is that you want to and you will do something. Not because I said it. In fact, if I had to say it to convince you of it, then something's not right. It's because of the spirit in you. That's the prayer. That's the hope that we will do right because we've been made right. So today we have the second part of this series that we started with of why disciples do what is right. And last week, if you remember, we talked about it, and one of the reasons disciples do what is right is simply because it makes the Father smile. It pleases the Father. And that should be enough. We shouldn't need any other reason than that it pleases the Father. It has nothing to do with whether it pleases us or whether it pleases us to please the Father. That doesn't matter. What should matter is God who loves us, God who creates us, God who provides for us, God who has done so much for us that if we can do anything that pleases him, regardless of how it makes us feel. That should be enough. 
But for that to happen, things have to be done from a pure heart. And we defined what a pure heart was last week. We said a pure heart is, is, is a heart that has no trace of selfishness. That what we do, there's, there's nothing in it. There's nothing in it that's for us. There's nothing in it that's for our attention, for our legacy, anything. It's, it's almost as though we could do things if it wasn't for the need to, for people to, to see Christ in us, but that we could do things almost like ghosts. You know, my, my wife says one of her career goals when she was younger was to be a spy. Um, I'm not sure she would have made a great spy, um, but that's what she wanted to be. And it's almost like that's how it should be, that we're, we're not getting any credit. We're not going to get medals. No one's going to know what we do. We just do it. It's a pure heart. It's not even just for a sense of personal satisfaction because you might not ever get to see that you had any effect on anyone. I always wonder what would have happened if William Carey, the first of the modern missionaries who went to India, if William Carey, if, if his ministry had stopped three or four years in, because if you know anything about his ministry, what happens is he spends seven years in India before he sees one convert. Most of us would have given up after seven months, seven years. And it's coming at great personal sacrifice to him. His wife is so upset that she's been taken to India. She has a mental breakdown. Eventually she has to be institutionalized. What would have happened? What would William Carey have thought if three or four years in, God took him home and he never saw a convert? Well, I hope I know enough about William Carey, the man who said, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, that it wouldn't have mattered. That, that if he had been pulled out three years in, seeing no converts, seeing what it's doing to his family, what personal hardship it caused, that if he was pulled out and he was given a chance to make that decision all over again, that he would have made the same decision. Because it wasn't about how it was going to end up. It was about doing what he believed God was calling him to do right then at that moment, regardless of what tomorrow brought. You see, most of us want some kind of success, I mean, some kind of promise of success. We want to know, like, if I were to tell you, like, okay, I got this great plan for the church. I got this great plan. The next five years I have this plan. What all of you would want to know is, what are the chances it's going to succeed? Because if I could promise you in five years exactly what will be in five years, a lot of people go like, let's do it. But if I told you what I told the last church that I was with, if I told you I have a plan and I have no idea how it's going to turn out, I only know that it's what God wants us to do. That we could fail miserably 
that what God might need to do is he, need, he may need to have people like us attempt something and fail and someone else come along and attempt something similar and they fail. And maybe there needs to be 37 failures that they all build off of our failure and finally they get it right. Are you willing to be that failure? Are you willing to trust God, do what he says, even if there's no promise of success? It's the pure heart does. The pure heart does. You see, if, if we were given Jesus' abilities and we were given Jesus' ministry and we were told that, you know, at the end of your ministry, first of all, it's only going to last about three years. Not much of a career. And, yeah, you're going to have moments when you're wildly popular, when it's like, you know, we talk about Jesus mania, like Beatle mania. But that at the end, only one of your disciples is going to be there. And your mom, and a few of the women. That's it. We would be like, wait a minute. You're giving me all these powers? You're giving me the ability to heal people and bring them back to life? You're giving me the ability to, 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 to look into God's word and to know it and to preach it in such a powerful way that it draws tens of thousands and at the end I'm going to end up with my mom who kind of has to be there so she doesn't really count. And one follower? Really? The pure heart. We do it for the Father's smile, regardless of how it makes us feel. What I hope you heard from what Becky was sharing is what we know is true, but sometimes we just know it in kind of theory because we don't really see it. That we live in a world full of hurting people. And these hurting people, they need help that can only come from God. I wish you could hear more of the stories. I wish you could hear that, that some of them, they don't, they don't get to leave the situation completely. I wish you could hear the stories about some of the victims who have more grace for the ones who are prostituting them and beating them than we would have. Because you would know that they were helped in a way that only God could help. You see, we have enough money to do things for, to, you know, to, to help you know, give people more food or give them a nicer place to live. But we cannot change their hearts. This world is hurting. And the help that they really need can only come from God. I'm only going to read to you just one verse. And this verse... It, it comes out of the book of Micah, and, and I talked on this yesterday at the conference, and you, know, you can listen to, the, to it, and I, I really don't like 
doing the same message twice, and so it's difficult because I always forget what I said in one, and and then I, you know, I don't know. But I'll just tell you a little bit about the background of this passage. It's in the book of Micah. Some of you probably should start now because you've never seen the book of Micah, um, and that part of your Bible, may, the pages still may be stuck together. So I'm giving you a warning. But it's Micah chapter 6. And Micah the prophet is, is writing in the 8th century. And in the 8th century, Israel is, is, is going through this, 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 this development. As in, at this point, it's already devolving. But just prior to, the, to this time, Israel was at the height of its power. God had done something miraculous in Israel. Where Israel was this this group that was kind of ethnically connected, but not as much as we think. I mean, their, their ancestry goes back over 400 years, and in, in that time, there had been a lot of intermarrying. So they're not as, as, as ethnically homogenous as we think. And yet God had brought them out of slavery, and they had become this, this powerful nation. Some people even say for a brief time they were an empire. But that, that success that they had, that worldly success that they had came at a price. And they became a lot like the rest of the world around them. In fact, in Micah's time, you know, in the, in, in, in the northern kingdom, what happens is as soon as Solomon dies, at the height of, of Israel's power, he dies and, and people start fighting for control. And the kingdom divides into two. And in the north, it's just one bad king after another. Very few kings even die of natural causes. They're, they're assassinated. This doesn't sound like the people that had said there at the base of Mount Sinai that we make this covenant with you, God. That we agree to what you say is how we should live. No. In the highest places, they're, they're, they're breaking all of the commandments. They're embracing this sin, this lack of gratitude to God for his, what he's provided. They've, they've become idolaters and, and um, engaging in you know, the ritual prostitution that was, that was, that was very common in the, in the religions around them. They were even participating in, in a form of, of infanticide, of killing babies. Killing babies in the name of of worshiping one of the gods. And while all this is happening, while they're living in their success, there's a growing threat. The Assyrian, the Assyrian Empire is, is quickly ascending to power. And the prophet Micah is called and God is going to speak. 
And as I told the group yesterday, you know, the, the, the Disney version of this, or the version that a lot of American Christians want to hear, is God's going to raise up Micah, and Micah's going to go, you guys have been naughty, stop being naughty, and God will save you. That's what they want to hear. That's what we think. And then Israel's going to stop being naughty, and God's going to protect them from their enemies. Instead, God says this. He says, your wounds are incurable. Your wounds are incurable. It's like if the doctor says, you have cancer and there's nothing we can do about it. Your wounds are incurable. You are going to die. Why are their wounds incurable? Their wounds are incurable because they're not simply actions, they're not simply sins. Their wounds are incurable is because the disease is in their very culture. It's in their DNA. And it's being expressed not just in their idolatry, it's also being expressed in, in their, their lack of compassion for their, for their fellow Israelites. They, the rich are getting richer and the poor are being more and more oppressed. And it's not like the picture we sometimes get of, of rich people sitting up there, you know, saying, you know, how can we hurt the poor people? It's not, that's not what's happening. It's as though the rich people don't know the poor people exist. They don't even think about them. It's like they don't exist. That's how bad it is. Israel had been intended to be this great nation, this model for the other nations to follow. Other nations were supposed to see what Israel was doing in following God and God's ways and establishing what a good nation, a good society is. And other nations were supposed to say, you know what, we should do that too. But no. That's not what's happening. Their wounds are incurable. But in the midst of this, Micah says, there is a remnant. There is a remnant of faithful people. And that's who this verse is directed to. So in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is a summary of the Old Testament. It's a quote that's been quoted by presidents of the United States. A lot of us can look at this and if long as nobody pays attention to the details, we can all agree with this. Like, this is good. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. That sounds like good advice. But we need to understand this in context. And I don't have time to unpack all of it as much as I'd like, but let me just give you a few quick points. 
First of all, as we learned last week, righteousness means that we, in, in the expression of righteousness, one of the main ways we express righteousness is that we help those in need. What does this tell us? It tells us that doing what is right, doing what is right is the mark of the true disciple. Doing what is right is the mark of the true disciple. Helping people in need is the mark of a true disciple. You don't have to wonder what righteousness is. You may not fully understand what righteousness is, but Jesus has told us back in Matthew what righteousness looks like. Righteousness looks like you see people in need, you help them. That's what it looks like. James, the brother of Jesus, says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why widows and orphans? Why did he specify that? Because they were the most needy. If we're not meeting the needs of the most needy, then what are we doing? Are we just picking people that we think we can help? You see, when we pick the most needy, we're saying a couple things. First of all, we're saying the most needy are unlikely to be able to help us back. So we're really helping the way God helps. We're loving the way God loves. He doesn't help those who can pay him back. He doesn't give for what he can receive. But the other point of meeting the needs of the most needy means that most of us will admit we can't meet the needs of the most needy. It's easy if, if you go up to somebody and you say, what do you need? And they say, oh, I need five bucks. And so you go, oh, here's five dollars. It's quite a different situation if you say, oh, what do you need? Uh, I need a ride to the hospital twice a week for the rest of my life. Oh, ooh, here's five bucks. I need a place to live. I need a job. I need somebody who will sit with me and counsel me and it's gonna take years before I ever sort this stuff out. Oh, here's five bucks. No. James and Jesus agrees, go to the most needy. Jesus says it this way when he tells the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, he, he talks about how, how, you know, how when he was hungry, his disciples fed him, and how when he was naked, they clothed him, and when he was in prison, they came to visit him. And the disciples are confused, and they're saying, when did we do this? When did we do this? And it says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You didn't just help the people you felt you could help without it inconveniencing you too much. You found the most needy person and you helped the most needy person. Even though you knew you couldn't. That's the witness. 
The second point, to do what is right, we need to do justice. It doesn't say no justice. It doesn't say understand justice. It says you need to do justice. But of course, to do it, we need to know what is God's justice? What does God consider right and wrong? And this is the big problem that the world is having today, even among Christians, especially Christian young people. They all want to talk about God's love. I love God's love. We need to show God's love more to the world. But nobody wants to talk about God's justice. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that God has said there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And we need to know them. We need to know his justice. Yes, we need to know his love. That's the next point. That disciples do God's justice. They do this justice, but they do it with great kindness. Maybe a better word than kindness there is with great mercy. What the prophet says, that what is good is that we love mercy. In other words, we don't know what we don't want to know what God considers right and wrong so we can sit there and judge, so we can sit there and condemn. I've told you this before, but I would love to see this place full of people, not like us, who have become really good at hiding our sin. I want people who walk in here and their sin is so apparent when they walk in this room doesn't mean we're better than them, it's just that we're better, than, we're better at hiding it. Why doesn't the prostitute feel welcome in this church? Would you welcome them? Would you welcome the homosexual? Would you welcome the lesbian? Would you? We need to. We need to. And we need to welcome them in such a way that they know without a doubt they are loved. But they also need to know that the God who loves them also is a God of justice. We are not doing the world any favors by just saying God loves and therefore he accepts everything that anybody wants to do or wants to be. We need both. And I'm not telling you it's easy. It's hard. It's hard to love in such a way that we do not compromise the holiness of God. And it is difficult to be holy in such a way that we do not compromise his love. If you don't find it difficult, then you're not doing it. If you don't find it difficult to know, what do I say? How do I help? How do I love somebody that's doing something that's clearly against God's word? We need that. Disciples understand God's justice. They do God's justice, but they do so with great kindness. And then the last bit says they live, they walk Humbly before God. A better word than humbly might be carefully. But maybe you could just leave that out altogether and just say, disciples 
walk with God. God is always present. And I'm telling you, if I'm walking with God, I'm pretty much going to follow him. I'm not going to walk with God and, and say, hey, God, let's go over here. I want to know where he's going. I want to know what he's doing. I want to see what he's looking at. And if, I'm a, if I feel constantly that I'm in the presence of God because I actually am, I'm always going to think about doing things that don't offend him, that honor him, that even make him smile. But this is a reminder to us that even though disciples, disciples do right because they're the disciple, it is the mark of the disciple to do what is right, that it is impossible to do what is right without God. It is impossible to do what is right with a pure heart without being changed by the Holy Spirit. This is the point we need to understand. As disciples, we do right because we have been made right. We don't do right to get right. We don't do right so that we have a list. When we became Christians, we were given the Holy Spirit and we were made right. And here's the other side. If you have the Holy Spirit and you are a disciple, you cannot help but do what is right because it is who you are. You cannot hear stories like Becky told us today and not want to respond in a right way to meet needs. And it's going to be different from, for everyone, but what should be the same for every believer in this room is that you want to and you will do something. Not because I said it. In fact, if I had to say it to convince you of it, then something's not right. It's because of the spirit in you. That's the prayer. That's the hope that we will do right because we've been made right. 